Hi there, it's Lucia, host of the Witch Money podcast here. Before we start today's episode, I just wanted to tell you about a really handy new tool from us here at Witch, and even better, it's free. It's called My Money Health Check. All you need to do is answer a few quick questions about your finances, and then we'll do the rest, pointing you towards our brilliant witch advice that we think you'll find really useful. Once again, that's My Money Health Checks. If you want help with cutting your bills or making your money go further, it's the place for you. Just head to witch.co.uk forward slash My Money Health Check. So on our last episode, I was rummaging through a cupboard I have that's full of random old electronics. In the episode before that, I was taking a long, hard look at my fridge and realising how flippantly I throw away food. So as we march on in my journey of self-reflection, I mean our mini-series on waste, this week I'll be gazing in horror at my wardrobe as we delve deep into the shocking world of fast fashion. It's estimated that £30 billion worth of clothes, clothes that have never actually been worn, in fact, are hanging in wardrobes across the UK. That's quite an astounding figure. Let me open my wardrobe. A quick scan and I can see it's full of clothes I rarely wear. Spontaneous purchases that felt great at the time, but in reality just aren't practical. If you assume that wardrobes up and down the country have a similar story, that's a lot of unused clothes that are collecting dust. And then there's the clothes that we throw away. I was reading a stat the other day that said 10,000 items of clothing are being sent to landfill every five minutes. And most fabrics, especially things like lycra or polyester, will take hundreds of years to decompose. So those cheap leggings you chucked in the bin last week could still be lurking around in a landfill site in the 25th century. Another lovely gift for our poor descendants to inherit as they stave off the apocalypse. So much damage has already been done, but could the tide be turning for fast fashion? Do green credentials from fashion brands actually mean anything? And during a cost of living crisis, where does affordability come into it? I'm Grace Farrell, and these are all questions I'm hoping to find answers to in this week's Witch Investigates. Has fast fashion finally had its day? Investigates is brought to you by the UK's Consumer Champion. We work to make life simpler, fairer and safer for everyone. We've got new episodes out every fortnight, diving deeper into the issues that matter. If you've got something you'd like us to investigate, give us a shout on social at witchuk or email us at podcasts at witch.co.uk. Coming up, once again, I hear how the UK is a world leader in waste. What a surprise. The UK has the highest level of consumption across the whole of Europe. So we've become very accustomed to buying large quantities of clothing and often lower quality clothing as well at cheaper prices. 
Our old friend greenwashing makes an unwelcome return. So often garments will be sewn in one factory, but then finishings and labels might be added elsewhere. So for example, when you see a made in the UK label, that might mean that one very small part of that garment was made or finished in the UK when actually that garment is a product of processes across a number of factories across the world. And I meet a former Love Islander who's fighting back against the industry. Whilst you're in the villa, you get basically like a body bag size of clothes every four days, five days. And there's a massive mountain of clothes at the end of the room that no one ever sees off camera. It's just so insane. I should say that conversation with Brett from Love Island is not to be missed. It's pretty gobsmacking. We'll be hearing more from him later on. So make sure you stick around. First, though, let's go back to basics. How did we go from the whirling looms of the workhouses to the world of ASOS and Boohoo? Here's producer Rob with a quick dash through history. The drive to fast fashion began from the moment Hargreaves of Othwistle built the first spinning jenny to spin cotton faster. By the 1770s, the mill owner, Richard Arkwright's version, could spin 20 to 30 warp threads at once. With faster material production came more ready-to-wear clothes, and by the early 1800s, many housemaids were asking for higher wages to fund new fashion purchases. It was only the Second World War that really slowed down our headlong sprint towards fast fashion, with the purchase of civilian clothing restricted to free up materials and shipping space for the war effort. Ultimately, fashion sped up not just the fibre production, but also garment making. Many processes were computerised, although not all. As the cost of maintaining these systems increased, by the 1990s much of the UK fashion industry had been almost entirely exported to some of the lowest wage economies on earth. Something I'm sure we'll come on to later. Thanks, Rob. And a huge thanks to Lucy Siegel, who wrote the Guardian article that that was based on. We'll focus on those people who are usually from the poorest countries that are tasked with making our clothes a little later. But for now, let's turn our attention back to this country. The UK has the highest level of consumption across the whole of Europe. So we've become very accustomed to buying large quantities of clothing and often lower quality clothing as well at cheaper prices. So obviously this has become very normal within a society and with the culture of purchasing fashion garments. But obviously the kind of level of consumption that we're experiencing obviously has natural consequences on disposal and use and maintenance, even that value that we kind of have within garments as well. This is Dr Alana James, a fashion designer, educator and researcher from the University of Northumbria. She mentioned obvious natural consequences of how we buy and dispose of clothes. It's something I also covered with Zainab Mahmoud, who's a freelance fashion journalist and researcher. It's difficult to separate the impact of fast fashion from the impact of the rest of the fashion industry. And as a whole, there is debate over whether fashion contributes 10% or 20% of global emissions. But either way, that's a massive portion of global emissions. 
For reference, the International Energy Agency reported that the aviation industry contributed 2% of all CO2 in 2021, which gives you an idea of what a sizable contribution the fashion industry is making to climate change. So you're clear, that disparity between 10 and 20% figures, it comes from data being underreported. It's difficult to track the whole life cycle impact from crop growth for materials like cotton all the way through to the manufacturing and then waste emissions. Cotton, for example, takes huge quantities of water, not only as a crop, but through the kind of processing and production of that fibre as well. It takes huge amounts of agricultural land, pesticides, labour, whereas synthetic, yes, it is a man-made finite resource, but it doesn't require that level of water. A recent report found that it takes two and a half thousand litres of water to produce just one cotton shirt. While the same report also worked out that the fashion industry currently uses enough water to quench the thirst of 110 million people for an entire year. I don't know about you, but when I think back to the droughts we had in the summer, it does make me question our relationship with water here. Dr James also mentioned synthetic fibre, which is being used more and more to make the clothes we love. It's man-made, and as a result, it can be produced en masse, but it requires the use of oil, and this has its own impact on the environment. And you get what you pay for. Synthetic clothes aren't as resilient as some natural fibres, which means you're more likely to chuck your clothes away because of snags or tears, and then you buy a cheap replacement, and the cycle starts again. For that amount of money, obviously, they're not going to be good quality garments that they may be worn once or twice. In some occasions, not at all. The UK are also really bad for buying garments and for them sitting in our wardrobes completely unworn, never worn, until we have a clear out and then we realise they're there and then we have to dispose of them. Synthetic fibres have allowed the fast fashion industry to explode in popularity on a scale that we haven't really seen in any other sector. Zainab recently wrote a story on it. So when I wrote that piece for The Guardian, the business of fashion had recently published some figures on the number of styles that different fashion brands had put out. So I believe that this data is from the first three months of 2022. And during those months, H&M had added 4,414 new styles to its US website. And Shein had added 315,000 styles to its website. So it's really quite jarring because I, like I say, consider H&M to be a fast fashion brand. But when you look at the bar charts in particular, let alone hear the figures, it's staggering to see how much more product Shein is producing. Sheen, sometimes pronounced Sheen, is a brand that came up a lot during my conversations for this episode. Just a week before we recorded this, an investigation by Channel 4 had found that workers in Chinese factories that supply products for Sheen were working 18 hours a day, with shifts starting at 8am and finishing in the early hours. They also revealed that the workers were only given one day off a month and were sometimes paid as little as 3p per item. It's estimated that only 2% of garment workers worldwide are paid living wages. So there's a climate justice and also a social justice issue. 
We contacted Sheen for comment on today's episode, but at the time of recording, they were yet to reply to our request. Over the last few years, we've seen numerous accidents reported that involve garment factory workers. In 2013, the Rana Plaza factory in Bangladesh collapsed, killing over 1,100 people and injuring more than 2,500. This followed a factory fire in Pakistan in 2012, which killed almost 300. Given what we've heard so far on today's episode, it's perhaps no surprise that some fashion brands have been accused of greenwashing in a bid to change the perception of their brand. It's very difficult when brands are manufacturing in an unethical way for them to be transparent about that because then obviously people are not going to want to buy their product. I think there probably are some consumers that are aware on some level that these supply chains are unethical but don't look into it further because like I say they don't want to be put off by something that they really want to buy because they know that it was produced in really horrible conditions. If you pick up an item of clothing and look at the label it will tell you where it was made but what does that actually refer to? It's more complicated than you might think. So often garments will be sewn in one factory, but then finishings and labels might be added elsewhere. So, for example, when you see a made in the UK label, that might mean that one very small part of that garment was made or finished in the UK when actually that garment is a product of processes across a number of factories across the world. I would say the average consumer's awareness is quite basic. And unfortunately, I think it's due to brands using greenwashing tactics and not being transparent. A lot of companies, as you said, are setting really, really ambitious targets, which again is hugely credible, but they have to follow through with that. I mean, there's nothing worse than a media expose saying, actually, you're completely greenwashing in your communications. And again, claims of greenwashing breaks down that consumer trust. One kind of story around either greenwashing or child labour or some kind of breach of conduct in terms of social and environmental sustainability, and that trust can be gone in seconds. Time and time again, we find ourselves being exploited for a brand's financial gain. And social media provides fashion corporations with a perfect pool of impressionable shoppers. A study from academics in the Journal for Interactive Advertising found that, quote, Instagram has been recognised as the most influential source for fashion insight. This was published in 2020. And since then, we've also seen TikTok explode onto the social scene. The kind of rise of social media and kind of the internet and, and bloggers, they've all had this really big influence on how consumers perceive fashion is this kind of element of people not wanting to be seen in the same garment twice, especially on social media. So obviously for a garment to be worn once, thrown away, that level of kind of consumption is just perpetuated by this very, very trend-led mentality that we're seeing in the younger generation at the moment. We were also seeing ultra-fast fashion now as well. So this kind of emergence of an even faster, more intensive fashion process through production and consumption. So yeah, the UK has a lot of work to do in terms of starting to tackle this kind of hunger of consumers with regards to fashion products. 
Yep, just when you got in your head around fast fashion, ultra-fast fashion is here to take its place. And the consequences could be dire. Next, we'll meet the former Love Islander who's fighting back against the industry. And we'll get a first-hand account of just how big a problem fast fashion was during his time on the show. More after this. Hello, I'm Lucia, the host of the Witch Money podcast. Each week, we're here with the very best advice to help you through the cost of living crisis and make your money go further. With new episodes out every Friday, we cover everything from energy bills to pensions and property to help you get the best deals and ensure you're not getting ripped off. Just search Witch Money wherever you get your podcasts. week on Witch Investigates, we're asking, has fast fashion had its day? We've already heard how social media has helped fuel our thirst for convenience and how that thirst is wrecking the environment. For the next part of today's episode, though, I want to introduce you to someone with a very unique perspective on what's happening in the industry right now. To do that, we're going to welcome back witch journalist Hannah Downs. Hey, Hannah. Hi, Grace. So who have you been talking to for this? Well, among all this talk around fast fashion and the influence of social media, there's one TV show that often comes up time and time again in these conversations. Yes, so this is Love Island, a show that's often criticised for showcasing disposable fashion. Even though it's on for weeks and weeks, you almost never see any of the contestants taking part wearing the same outfit twice. Now, for the series that ran earlier this year, they actually partnered with eBay. So they ditched their fast fashion sponsors and actually dressed the contestants in secondhand clothes instead. I heard about that. That actually sounds like a really good move. It's very, very different to what they've done in the past, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And a few weeks ago, we actually met with a former contestant, Brett Staniland, who came to chat in the witch offices. And he appeared on the show in 2021 when the clothes were still provided by fast fashion brands. He actually decided to make a stand and chose to wear his own clothes for the duration of the stay rather than wearing the clothes from the fast fashion retailer. I asked him why he made that decision. Can you tell us about your decision not to wear fast fashion on Love Island and what kind of reaction you got from producers, but also from viewers? Yeah, so it was actually part of the whole reasoning behind me doing the show. I was really keen to get the contestant agreement because I wanted to see the relationship between the fast fashion partner and the show. There was basically three options. So there's what I did, which I was able not to wear any of the clothes whilst I was there, not to accept any of the gift in, and then ultimately not have to do any paid ads after. But the other option was basically if the show meant that I had to wear the clothes, like contractually had to wear them, I would either have turned the whole show down or, and this was the other option that I spoke to my friends about, take as much money as I possibly could. And a year later, make a documentary using the fast fashion money to expose fast fashion. But it worked out like I didn't have to wear the clothes on the show and I was really adamant on that. But I remember meeting, like during the casting process, you meet a few producers and you sit in front of them. And I remember them saying like, is this what you usually wear? And I was basically in like some wide leg pants and like some oversized jacket or whatever. And I was like, yeah, this is, they were like, well, what are you gonna wear in the villa? I'm like, just this, but probably shorts because it's gonna be warmer. And they were kind of adamant on putting me in white, tight, skinny jeans. I was like, it's just never going to happen. Don't even bother. 
So the reaction from the producers was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. That's kind of like your thing. It's different to what we're used to, which is great as well. And obviously I'm not the archetypal masculine man that you usually see on Love Island, paint my nails, wear pearls and wear clothes that even I get from women's sections and stuff like that, which is normal to me and completely normal in all of my friendship circles, but not the type of thing you see on Love Island. So again, especially whilst I was there, there was a big reaction to what I was wearing from like the housemates, whatever. But um, they were generally quite nice. It wasn't until I got my phone back where like the reaction was crazy. Loads and loads of abuse, loads of homophobic abuse, which I still get today. And it was that reaction from the public. I remember going on Twitter, I think after Sun Show, and oh my God, there was like, I was trending and there was just loads of comments about everything I was wearing because I had my nails painted, because I was wearing pearls, because it, like, it looked like I had eyeliner on in some shots. And I was like, wow, like this is the first time I really saw the knee-jerk reaction of the public and like their perception of fashion and what masculinity is and all these other things compared to like the bubble that I've kind of made for myself over the last couple of years working in the industry as well. So it was quite enlightening and challenging as well at the same time. So yeah, bit of an up and down roller coaster throughout the process. That is awful that he got so much abuse. And it's a real glimpse into what happens behind the scenes of these big shows. What else did he talk about? So after that, I asked Brett more about his time on the show. And I thought it was a really crazy insight into the show's links with fast fashion at the time. Just before you go on the show, you're in another villa in Mallorca waiting to go and waiting for the producer to call you like, right, we're ready for you going in in two days. During that process, they're like, here's a code, go online and pick anything you like up to £500. But £500, you realise it's so much money on that website when jeans are £7 and £12. Like you can get an entire wardrobe for that amount of money. And then whilst you're in the villa as well, you get basically like a body bag size of clothes every four days, five days. So if you want, you could literally throw everything away, which I mean, there's a massive mountain of clothes at the end of the room that no one ever sees off camera. And you just get another bag full of clothes, whether you like it or not, just turns up. But throughout the week, if you're like, oh, I need some new swim shorts because I messed them up in a challenge or I just want some new ones or underwear or sandals or trainers, you can get anything. And every five days you're getting basically a wardrobe worth of clothes. It's just so insane. And it was really like mad to see it in person because I talk about overconsumption, but seeing it in person was so crazy. Yeah, that is- It was more clothes than I bought in like four years, honestly, just every five days. Hearing that is pretty disgusting, to be honest. When you think of the people who are making those clothes, the amount of resources that go into them, including the carbon footprint of shipping them from A to B, for them just to sit in a pile out of shot. But as we did mention earlier, as of this year, the show's moved to using secondhand clothes from eBay, which is a very welcome turn of events. And it's thanks in no small part to Brett, Hannah, how does he feel now that they've made that change? So here's what Brett told me, including how one of the contestants of the show, Tasha, has gone on to continue working with these pre-loved marketplaces. What did you think about the decision for all housemates to be in secondhand clothes this year? I was really proud and really grateful for like everyone and for the show. It was such a, I felt like it was such a big, tangible change, like in a decent moment for like the sustainable fashion community. We need some of these big names that come off the show to be ambassadors as well, which is great. So I'm really grateful for Tasha for getting on board with that. It's the first step. So now there's another season starting in January and I know eBay kind of working on stuff with them again. So yeah, it's nice to now get like a little bit of a snowball going and I hope that it just keeps going and going. 
Such a great initiative. Thank you so much, Hannah, for bringing us your chat with Brett. And I should say, if you want to hear more from him, we'll be releasing that full interview as a special bonus episode next week. Thanks again. No problem. Thanks. I should say, we did contact ITV, the makers of Love Island, for comment. They told us their goal with the eBay partnership is to get people to consider switching up their shopping habits with pre-loved fashion, whether that's taking baby steps with adding one or two items to your wardrobe or selling something you no longer wear to make way for something else. They went on to say they had shot the look edits on eBay with similar pieces to buy for the duration of the show, with the aim of the partnership inspiring a new way of thinking about clothes and fashion and supercharging a behaviour that we're already starting to see in many shoppers. Now, if you feel inspired by Brett and want to shop more sustainably yourself, We've done a big research project on secondhand marketplaces here at Witch. Here's Olivia Howes with more on what we looked at earlier this year. We surveyed 4,000 people about buying and 4,000 people about selling on 10 of the biggest secondhand marketplaces. That included sites like the big established ones like eBay to Challenger, sites like Vinted. We looked at basically how buyers and sellers found the whole buying on selling experience. So we looked at things like ease of setting up an account, ease of interacting with the buyer or seller if you've got any questions about the item, the choice of posted options, how easy it was to pay. We also asked them generally about how satisfied they were with the overall process. And actually one of the important things we also asked them about was if they did have a problem, how they found the dispute resolution process, if it existed. I always feel like it's such a minefield out there because there seems to be a new secondhand platform popping up all the time. So to have all the platforms rated like this was really useful. Vintive was at the top of the table. That's a marketplace that specialises in secondhand clothing, but also has recently added other categories like homewares, kids' toys, baby equipment and entertainment items. Facebook Marketplace and Gumtree also did really well, and they were closely followed by eBay and FreeCycle. At the bottom of the table was Pre-Loved, but that was quite closely followed by Spock and Nextdoor. I'll put a link to our results in the show notes for today's episode. Now, with the cost of living continuing to bite, it's no surprise that more of us are turning to second-hand clothes to get our fashion fix. Earlier this year, eBay Ads, a data company which is linked to the selling platform, saw searches for the term upcycled rise by 40% between December and January. It also reported increases in related search terms like secondhand and repair kit. So it's likely that those figures are higher now than they've ever been before. With more people using secondhand platforms, it's important to read their T's and C's to find out what their policies are in case anything goes wrong with your purchase. This is something Olivia knows a lot about. You'll definitely get buyer protection on nearly all purchases with Vinted, eBay and Depop. They have that built in as standard as long as you're paying using an approved method. You can also find buyer protection on some purchases on Facebook Marketplace but only if you pay using the Facebook or what's now called the MetaPay option. 
Spock offers bioprotection on certain items as well in certain categories. You'll know if you can use bioprotection if there's a buy now button. So secondhand marketplaces are clearly a good way to get rid of unwanted clothes. Don't forget that crazy figure from the start of the episode, that £30 billion worth of clothes are sitting in wardrobes that have never been worn. I use Vinted regularly as both a seller and a buyer, and I do find it really straightforward and stress-free. And of course, there are also charity shops, great for donating clothes and picking up bargains that you won't find anywhere else. I'd love to hear your best charity shop purchases. Tweet us at WitchUK with the hashtag WitchInvestigates. My best purchase was a faux fur coat from Gap, which I bought in 2012 and still wear every winter. Here's Dr. James with her views on charity shops. Ideally, we want to keep those garments in circulation for as long as possible. So it's always better to try and extend the life of a garment in in any way possible. So it's about extending that product life cycle. And I think, obviously, donating to charity is naturally a good thing. But she did go on to say this. There is a kind of emerging issue around the charity retail sector as well, because naturally, as we're producing and kind of consuming more product, then it has to go somewhere at the end. So charity shops are full of relatively cheap and lower quality garments. The environmental impact of that kind of area of things is is absolutely vast. Zainab Mahmoud went one further. Because we don't physically have enough space for this textile waste, our discarded clothes here in the UK are contributing to a concept known as waste colonialism. Waste colonialism, as Zainab and many others call it, has seen the UK and other Western nations send their unwanted fabric waste overseas. According to Greenpeace, the UK and Germany are the worst contributors to this problem. As I record this podcast, container ships full of our waste are travelling across the oceans. In 2015, RAP UK estimated that 70% of UK cast-offs head overseas, mainly to Poland, Ghana, Pakistan and Ukraine. In Ghana, these clothes even have their own name. It translates as clothes of the dead white man. It's sobering and it shows just how important it is that ultimately we limit what we buy in the first place. Large quantities of it are bundled up and sent to Northern Africa, which is naturally having an effect on the local textile economies in those countries. Some of it's shipped to Eastern Europe, for example. We have this kind of horrendous system, really, that actually we're producing and consuming and buying and using. And, and then we're getting rid of things, but actually we're just transferring the problem to somewhere else. So you might have seen in the press over the last few months, the Atacama Desert in Chile has just turned into this absolute landfill of old clothing. I actually mentioned Simon Reeves' series on South America in our episode on Tech Waste. It's still available on iPlayer, by the way, which I'll include a link to. And this was his reaction to the Atacama Desert. Oh my God. Just had one of those moments of awful realisation. So what I'm standing on is clothes. Underneath my feet, underneath the ground over here, there are tens of thousands of tons 
of clothes. I was above what is basically a mountain of used, discarded clothes. Each year recently here in Akike, it's thought an incredible 60,000 tonnes of clothing have been dumped illegally. The councillor just bulldozed it all into the ground, creating an enormous landfill. You can see these layers and layers of clothing coming out of the ground here. A pair of trousers here. It is mad that we create this clothing and then so readily throw it away. It's worth looking this up online, to be honest, as it kind of has to be seen to be believed. It's that bad. So what can we do to ensure scenes like that aren't repeated around the world? I asked our experts for their advice. I recommend setting yourself some sort of challenge, like doing a no-buy month or operating on a one-in, one-out policy with your wardrobe because when you reduce the amount you're buying, you allow yourself time and space to think about and look at what you have. And if you really are missing any key items in your wardrobe, then I would say explore the secondhand options available to you in your local area and online on apps like Vinted and Depop. In my mind, there's always the Dieter Rahm's proverb of less but better. Do we already have something in our wardrobe that we can fix? Can we borrow it from a friend? Between three or four of you, you've got a really big wardrobe and I lend my clothes to my mates all the time. So that's a good way to start. And yeah, shopping secondhand if you can. Consumption levels critically have to come down, but buying slightly better if you can in terms of quality. And naturally, if we buy a slightly higher quality, we're going to be not only valuing that garment better, but also keeping it for longer. As with all the issues we've looked at during our waste mini-series, we have a long way to go to limit our impact on the planet. It's crucial that we change our habits on a big scale so that we can influence the amount of clothes being produced. Thanks for listening to this episode of Witch Investigates, the final episode of our Waste mini-series. We'd love to know what you thought of it and about any changes you're making as a result. A big thank you to Hannah Downs for joining me over the last few weeks. She did a huge amount of work researching these episodes and sourcing some of the brilliant guests we've been able to bring you. Next time, we're going to be focusing our attention on Black Friday. And as part of it, we'll be visiting a huge Amazon distribution centre as they prepare for the shopping event of the year. If you've got any other ideas for consumer topics that we can investigate, give us a shout on social media or over email. Our email address is podcasts at witch.co.uk. And we have other podcasts too, which you should listen to. Just search for Witch Money and Witch Shorts wherever you're listening. I'd also recommend subscribing to our free email newsletters. They're genuinely useful and are packed with money-saving and sustainability tips to help you become a more conscious consumer. Find them at witch.co.uk forward slash newsletters. Today's episode was presented by me, Grace Farrell, written by Rob Lilly, produced by Hannah Downs, editing and original music is by Eric Breer, and our executive producer is Angus Farker. Special thanks this week go to Olivia Howes and everyone else here at Witch. And I'll be back soon for our next investigation. <laughs>